edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season and a good new year. We're going to begin the show today with our regular law of the day. Today is a very interesting one, and it is from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. So if you wish to follow along in your copy of scripture, that's where we'll be. And here is what the law says. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And is there a man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has a betrothed wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people, and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you, and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. All right. Now, that was a pretty long passage, and there are a couple other passages that we are going to allude to. Uh, in this discussion. But obviously the discussion here is about war and the rules for warfare that Israel was to um, obey and follow. Now, I want to make clear that it's not always easy to talk about the um, purging of the land of the Canaanites and the peoples there, but I don't want to get too long in a discussion about that. But just one thing to keep in mind is that God is has liberty, God is free to um, punish peoples as he sees fit. And sometimes he uses natural disasters like plagues or famine. And other times he uses 
um, people to do his, uh, his, his will. Uh, later on, we'll see in Scripture that he sends Assyria to punish Israel for its sins, and then he, after that, punishes Assyria because it behaved that way out of a sinful and prideful heart, not because it was trying to serve God. And in this case, the Lord has chosen to punish the nations living in the land of Canaan, and he's using Israel as uh, his method of doing so, as his means, the axe in his hand, if you will. Um, so that really is what I wanted to say about why the Lord says, you know, leave no living thing alive for those particular nations that uh, God is trying to deal with. And it's not, a ethnic, it's not an ethnic thing. It's a spiritual issue. And the reason why it's not ethnic is because he gives different rules for how they deal with other foreign nations, not the ones that they're purging in the land of Canaan, but other nations such as Babylon or Assyria or Persia or Nineveh or Egypt. So those are all neighboring nations that uh, were not the nations to be purged from the land. In those cases, the war was supposed to be very limited in its damage. And the intent here is that Israel was to trust in God and not their own numbers. It was essentially to be an all-volunteer army, okay? Because you would, you would bring out the troops, but then, you know, those who had new businesses, new business owners, new husbands, um, new property owners, they were to be allowed home to do the work uh, that they wanted to do back at home and to build their family, to build their business, uh, to build up their property. And additionally, those who were fearful or cowardly were not forced to fight, and they were not expected to fight, and they were not punished for not fighting. They were allowed to go back. Um, God wanted to make sure that those fearful soldiers did not spread fear to the army. So what you end up getting is a smaller, more dedicated, professional, and skilled fighting force, rather than a large horde of people who don't really want to fight. And putting these rules in place leads to several things. First of all, it means that Israel is not going to be able to go to war for just random reasons. They need to be legitimate reasons that the people believe in, that the troops buy into. Um, they're not just pawns to the king for his own amusement or aggrandizement or anything like that. And Israel is not haphazardly engaging in combat that could overwhelm them and destroy them. Essentially, they need to count the cost. They need to recognize that they can't sacrifice um, their entire population. And if the, if the war is going to be overly destructive, it's not, it would not be worth fighting about. And maybe there's another way to go about it. Maybe there's another way to make peace. So it causes them to very carefully decide when they're going to war. And if war is necessary, the peace that results from it must be worth it. It can't be a peace that leaves things worse than they were before. So the home front matters in that regard. As far as how they were to conduct the battle, they were to show honor in battle. They were to offer terms of surrender and peace before the fighting began. And they were to honor those terms, not just executing people, but simply acquiring labor or servitude. Now, that might sound horrible, but um, it is forced labor, and it's not slavery, though. The city was allowed to exist, to remain in place, 
It just had to serve Israel. Um, again, the idea there being that there's a legitimate reason for Israel to go to war uh, and that this something you know was done wrong against them and this city basically has to make restitution for the wrong that was done. If battle took place, only the men were to be killed because in those days, the men were the combatants. Men carried swords and spears and shields and bows and arrows and things like that and those were the combatants and they were to be killed but not the women and the children. Total destruction was out of the question. Women and children could be taken, but the rules for slaves also applied, and there are other laws in the Old Testament that speak to that. I'll go into more details later, but just a, a brief summary. For example, women could not be taken as sex slaves or concubines. They were either set free Okay, or they were married and given the full rights of a wife. And you can look at some of the laws there in Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 10 through 14. If the Israelite soldiers wanted to take one of the women as his wife, he had to allow her one full month of mourning for her family. And after that month of mourning, then he could marry her. And he would have to treat her as a full-fledged wife with all of her rights and uh, could not treat her any less than any of his other wives, uh, or somehow less than human. And if after that month of waiting period, he did not want to marry her, she was allowed to go free, and he would not be able to sell her uh, as a slave. So that's just an example. Essentially, Israel had to take responsibility for the fact that they were creating new widows and orphans by going to war. War is destructive, and God here is trying to limit the damage that's being done. Now, there's another point that's important to bring up. The method of warfare was also very limited. Israel was not allowed to destroy the fruit trees or essentially anything that was life-sustaining or life-producing. It was not to be destroyed, even if that seemed practical to do so. Even if it seemed like, well, we'll win if we can just starve them out and we destroy all of their land and all of their fruit production. If we just cut down these trees, then we can win. And God says not to think like that, not to think practically, but to obey him, trust in him. And this was a very marked difference between Israel and the nations around them. Nations like Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians, they didn't show restraint or mercy. A lot of times uh, their armies were conscripted soldiers who were forced to fight under pain of death under threat of death. They didn't always honor the terms of peace. They didn't even always offer terms of peace either, try to find a, a negotiated settlement. Um, when they won, women and children were either butchered, uh, left to starve, or they were turned into sex slaves and prostitutes. And there was no restriction on the method of warfare. Basically, no rules, right? Anything, anything goes, as long as it brings you victory. And Israel was to be different and to fight with genuine honor. They were to limit the damage that was done to themselves, the damage that was done to others, and the damage that was done to God's world. They were to count the cost and go to war only necessarily and only for good reasons. And they needed to take responsibility for why they went to war, how they were going to go to war, and what the results were going to be. So this is a I think, a very beautiful passage and very um, applicable today because, I mean, there's so much that can be said. Um, honestly, much of our 
tradition regarding rules of warfare today, chivalry, uh, laws of armed conflict, rules of engagement, um, all of that, all of that comes from the Christian worldview. It does not come from other worldviews. Um, the Christian world championed the restraint in warfare, and that even goes back before uh, the time of chivalry. Uh, for example, St. Augustine, who lived in the 400s, he, he spoke and wrote about just war theory, uh, when you can go to war and how. And the law of armed conflict today and the rules of, armed, of engagement, um, they talk about how you can only target legal targets. Um, only lawful combatants should be engaged in warfare. Religious sites and historical sites and places like hospitals are not to be targeted or destroyed. If the enemy surrenders, they're to be taken prisoner and treated well, not butchered or executed. Weapons that are used have to be limited. They can't, we can't be using chemical and biological weapons. And we can't use glass because glass is a little more difficult to remove and detect uh, with using x-rays and things like that. It's, more, it's just more destructive and cause unnecessary damage to, uh, to people. Uh, now, of course, I'm not saying that there haven't been examples of where the Christian, the Christian West has failed. Um, there have been plenty. But overall, the pattern has been to find ways to restrict uh, warfare. So to give just a couple examples of failures, though, I mean, yeah, there were chemical weapons used in World War I. And once they realized how bad that was, they banned it. And even, even Hitler himself in World War II did not employ chemical weapons against troops in the field. I mean, sadly, he, he did it against the Jews and other people in the concentration camps, which is horrible and wicked. But for whatever reason, he was restrained in using them in combat. And I'm, I don't know entirely why. I mean, he personally was gassed during World War One, and so maybe he did not want to bring that upon his troops or upon um, the other troops, the Allied troops. I don't know. But either way, for whatever reason, he did not employ chemical weapons against the Allies. But another example of, fa of failure would be the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. And, and we did that. The United States did that. We did it to defoliate the jungle to basically deny food and coverage to the Viet Cong. And again, God says, are the trees humans that you should go to war with them? And clearly they're not, and you don't just go to war with God's, with God's world. So um, another example would be in the Civil War when General Sherman um, marched on Atlanta and destroyed it. And he said that his desire was to make the civilians feel the hard hand of war. He wanted to engage in total warfare against the population and to bring pain and suffering upon the people of Atlanta and the South. Another one would be the draft and the forced enlistment of troops uh, during Vietnam and prior to that. Now, thankfully, things have improved. Um, I think in many ways there have been, you know, it's like a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And I do think we've made a couple steps backward uh, recently, but uh, in general, I, I would say the United States has actually improved because uh, we're no longer utilizing uh, the draft, although, you know, the draft number is still in place and theoretically could be employed. We are an all-volunteer force, um, highly professional, skilled, and dedicated and motivated force. We give more attention to the importance of collateral damage and the use of precision weapons. We um, show restraint in the use of biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons and have tried to reduce their numbers. 
Um, and we give exemptions to combat if soldiers are experiencing certain hardships at home that have to be um, taken care of. So anyways, more work needs to be done, but it's only going to get worse if we abandon God's word. I mean, without God's word as the foundation, there's no reason to restrain warfare. At the end of the day, the only guiding principle is to do whatever works. That's, that's the humanistic, selfish, man-centered principle. Whatever works, we do it. Well, um, that's, not, that's not the way we're supposed to function. We sp- we're supposed to follow the rules. How we, how we win matters. All right, so that is the law of the day today. And now we're going to continue with our study of Lex Rex, uh, The Law is the King by Samuel Rutherford. And again, I recommend, uh, if you haven't listened before, that you please uh, read that book if you get a chance. There's a short version or a long version. I have both, but but read the abridged version if you wish to. It's not very long. It's less than, less than 200 pages. Uh, very useful in understanding the relationship between the church, the state, and the Christian, and um, the idea of civil disobedience. So, Today we are in chapter 14, so I'm just going to read the question and go through a brief summary of what that chapter discusses. So uh, chapter 14 says this, Is a ruler more important than the safety of the people? Rutherford gives the answer of no, um, because the ruler and his authority come out from the people. They sp- it springs forth from the people for the purpose of serving them. And so the safety of the people as a whole is more important than the ruler as an individual. And this is a perfect example of servant leadership. Good leaders are willing to sacrifice themselves to protect those whom they are serving. They, they lay down their lives that others may live. And as Jesus says, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. So um, a true leader does that. And rulers are not to, they're not in charge in order to gain personally. They're not set over the people for their own aggrandizement. So even if the ruler has more importance than one individual citizen, he does not have more importance than the people taken as a whole. Again, rulers exist for the good of the people, not for their harm. And if, 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 a, if the ruler fails to do their duty, lesser magistrates under them are still obligated to do their duty. So tyranny is a threat because it undermines and destroys the society. It is for the, for the harm of the people. That's what tyranny is, the complete opposite of what, it's, of what government is supposed to be. And Rutherford uh, gives this quote. He says this, If the political infrastructure and the ability to make and maintain law is destroyed, the people can neither be safe free to serve Christ, nor happy, end quote. So again, if the ruler is going to undermine everything, the people can't be free, they can't be safe, and they can't be happy. And the purpose of the ruler is to lead to those things, not to take those things away. So it's important, Rutherford argues, that there be a large number of lesser magistrates underneath, underneath the, the ultimate ruler, like the king. And the reason for this is to limit the power of the ruler and to protect the people against tyranny and anarchy. Both of those are the problem there. If you have um, power put into very small number of people, just one or two people or just a few people, then when, if there's a power vacuum, if something happens, you get anarchy. Okay, so you want to divest that power. You want to decentralize that power and have a large number of magistrates so that 
not only is the ruler prevented from being a tyrant, but if anything were to happen to that ruler or the central government, things don't just fall into anarchy. There is a safety net of government. And advisors are to take care not to just tell rulers what they want to hear. And Rutherford gives the example of advisors always arguing that all of the good in the lives of the people are completely dependent on the will of the government. So apparently that was a, a common thing that was happening back then. Um, Rutherford says this, he says, quote, Power is not an inheritance from heaven, but a birthright of the people, which they lend to their rulers. They may distribute it out for their good, but must resume it when a ruler becomes drunk with it, end quote. So if rulers receive their power and authority directly from God, like the prophets of the Old Testament, then there's no real reason to have a debate or discussion about whether the law is supreme or the ruler is supreme. Now, no doubt, the, the, the ruler is ordained by God, and his authority is ultimately derived from God. But there's a step in between, and that, that does involve the people. But again, if the ruler is directly connected to God, and it's always the case that it is, then the ruler would be the supreme and ultimate authority and would be a law unto himself, able to change it at will and exempt himself from it. But the fact is, is that when the people set up a government, because all governments derive from among the people, again, as even the Old Testament says, um, when Moses tells the people of Israel, when you set a king over you, okay, so the idea is people selecting the king. Now, God also does a selection. That's why it's a mutual thing. That's why it's a covenant between the king and the people and God, the king and the people, as we see in the book of Kings. But whenever the people set up a government, they don't lose their authority. They retain the authority to make or unmake the government if they see fit. Now, Rutherford does recognize in this chapter that there may be situations where the ruler can have near absolute power. This would be an example of like a foreign invasion, where the ruler is still working for the greater good of the people. Um, it might require the suspension of certain laws that protect private citizens, but it's done um, for the greater good. But Rutherford points this out. He says, even if the ruler does that, he might even if he might break the letter of the law, um, he's still serving the spirit of the law, which is the protection, safety, freedom, and happiness of the people. He's still not doing it for his own glory or his own aggrandizement, um, but he's, he's trying to help the people as best as he can and to bring things back to some semblance of normalcy. So that's chapter 14. And chapter 15 is a very important chapter. It's one of the key chapters in the book. Uh, and the question is, is the ruler above the law? And again, Rutherford would say no. And he, he says this, quote, No ruler has ever received the right or power from God to sin, tyrannize, or wield unlimited power. The ruler can do all things that the law says he can do. Therefore, the ruler cannot be above the covenant made between him and the people. End quote. So Rutherford points out that the ruler can't violate the law without sinning against God. There is a law above the ruler. It's ultimately God's law. But it could be another law that is agreed to by the culture and by the people. So, for example, um, King Darius, when he makes his decree in the book of Daniel that um, people have to pray to him for 30 days, he can't undo that law. And his counselors remind him about that. They say that based on the law of the Medes and the Persians, 
the king can't go back on his word or or repeal a law. And so Darius has to submit to that. That is the law of the Medes and the Persians, which existed before him, before he was king. So that's an example of, of a human law that is still above the current ruler, or if you would, an unwritten constitution that's above the current ruler. Now, you see in the Gospels that Jesus commanded people to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to give unto God what is God's. And he uses the example of the coin, which bears the image of Caesar on it. Now, the reason why he does that is to also point out the opposite. If this coin has Caesar's image, it belongs to Caesar. But what has God's image? People do. People. People have God's image. People belong to God, including Caesar. Caesar is also an image bearer of God, and he belongs to God, and he is to give unto God what is God's as well. So, everyone is underneath God's law, everyone, including the king, including Caesar. Uh, Another example would be in the Old Testament, Israel. Uh, The king was required to write a copy of the law and to be graded it was to be graded by the priests and make sure he did it accurately. And he was to follow the law all his days. That was the requirement for the kings of Israel. So at the end of the day, Rutherford points out that uh, no, uh, no ruler is above God's law. And he says even no Christian ruler has ever been above church discipline. So theoretically, if a Christian king is sinning and living in sin, you know, he he, and he's a member of the church, he's a, he's a Christian, he's part of the church, he could be put under church discipline. He's not above it. He's not above the law. And Rutherford uh, makes this quote. He says, Sin is sin, whether committed by the highest ruler or the lowliest peasant. End quote. And so, ultimately, the idea here is that um, no one is above the law. Um, there's a great quote from uh, one of my favorite movies called uh, Dragonheart, uh, which uh, Dennis Quaid is, is the main character, and Sean Connery plays uh, the voice of the dragon. But, you know, the, the main character, Bowen, is a knight, and, and he lives by the code of knights. Um, it's a chivalric, uh, Christian-based code. And he tells one of his protégés, um, the protégé is the king's son, uh, and the, a very wicked king. And, and the, the prince himself is also wicked. And the prince basically says that the king is above the law. Uh, and essentially, Bowen, the, the knight who's the tutor, um, you know, points out to him that no one is above the law, especially the king. And I think that was a very um, accurate and very moving scene in the movie um, because it's true. No one is above the law, um, especially the king, especially the ruler. And um, the, the idea of divine right of kings where they can make whatever law they want to, is just, that's just pure wickedness. That is not at all in Scripture. That's not Israel. That's not God's law. That's not the Mosaic Covenant, and it's not um, the way that God wants people to function today, even if they're not Christians. Every king is underneath God's law. Caesar needs to give unto God what is God's, and that includes himself because he is an image bearer of God. So with that, I hope that was a, um, a, a useful um, summary for you. Again, Lex Rex chapters 14 and 15, we'll uh, move on to the next chapters next week. Um, 
And again, if you uh, haven't yet had a chance to do so, please share the show with a friend, like the show, give the thumbs up, reviews, stars, all those things are very helpful. You can um, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or want me to address any topics on the show. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at the GBG Podcast, or you can go to patreon.com, look for Governed by God, and become a supporter. Um, if so, I would greatly appreciate it, and thank you for that. So with that, until next time, take care, and